0: Hey, I'm Bruce Weinstein, and this is the podcast Cooking with Bruce and Mark. And I'm Mark Scarborough, and we have got a packed podcast episode today. We're going to talk about feeding the world. Yes, in fact, in your own kitchen, you have to feed the entire world. You have to feed everybody that ever existed. We've got a one-minute cooking tip. We've got a great interview with Abby Dodge coming up, and a lot more. So let's get started.
1: Segment one. Mark said we're going to talk about feeding the world. Well, start with feeding your family. Think about how hard that is for so much of us, just a family of four. And we all go, oh, God, I can't do it. Okay, <laughs> by 2050, less than 30 years from when we record this podcast, this planet will have 10 billion people. Oh, my on God. It. 10 billion by 2050. 50 you got to feed them all not you personally but we as a society as a global community have to feed 10 billion people
0: and here's the thing it's hard but it is actually not impossible but there is a problem and here is the big problem 30 to 40 percent of all the food produced globally is ends up rotted in the trash. Ugh. It ends up dead. According to the EPA, that's about 218, 219 pounds of food waste per person just in the US every year sent away for disposal. That's un Believable That is. as it's much, heartbreaking. It's heartbreaking. It, it is. It's actually like, you know, my body weight in food is destroyed every year. And it's as if all of our body weights in food are destroyed every
1: year. And, you know, it's easy to throw blame around, but it is everyone's fault. It's the consumers. It's us. It's yeah. retailers. Yeah. It's shippers. Yeah. I mean, here are some of the reasons. Like, well, people get confused by food date labels. They yes, are very confusing. Are. So a lot of people throw out food when they don't need to because of a label.
0: Yes, it's true. And restaurants, of course, serve massive portions. And Bruce and I were just on vacation. We actually took a vacation the first time since the COVID pestilence. And we were astounded at several places that we went. We were way up in the north woods of Maine, and let's just say there's not a lot of haute cuisine in the far north woods of Maine. But we were astounded at the portions. And Bruce and I are both hefty eaters, and I have to tell you that I sent back half a plate
1: night after night, and that just goes in the garbage. Yeah, of and you walk into a grocery store, you know, it could be a regular supermarket like Tom Thumb, or it can be a high end f- store like like Whole Foods. And those stores are overstocked. The produce departments are stocked with much more than people can and buy. you know why
0: that is, right? Because the produce department is the loss leader in most supermarkets. And that's because people don't actually buy that much produce. However, supermarkets have discovered that they have to have a full and abundant looking produce section because it makes people think it's a good supermarket people actually watch them you stand in a supermarket and watch them watch how they walk in look at the produce department and go right on buy it or maybe they stop and bit, pick up a bag of lettuce it is the loss leader in supermarkets but it has to look full in order for the supermarket to look legit
1: yeah because if you look do you want to buy an apple from a store that has two apples on the shelf no. or do you want to buy an apple from a store that has piles and piles of apples of
0: course that's what you want to do. However, that produce, a lot of it leads to significant food
1: loss. And if you also notice, most of that produce in that store looks beautiful, yep. which means farmers are tossing a lot of less than beautiful produce because stores don't want to buy it.
0: Okay, so most food ends up in the landfill. It generates methane gas. It's greenhouse gas. It's a problem not just here in the U.S., but in other countries around the world, like the Netherlands. The Netherlands, believe it or not, is the second biggest exporter of agricultural products by value after the United States. But the Dutch government has pledged to be the first European country to have the amount of discarded food by 2030. So they are actually doing Doing something about it but believe it or not they aren't the first to try to do that no
1: back in 2015 right here in the USA the USDA and the EPA declared the same 50% reduction by 2030 so we are doing stuff about it and you know what it's going to take science and that includes oh horrible words to hear genetic modification and that is a touchy subject. it's a
0: touchy subject and we don't want to touch the politics of it but listen here is the truth you cannot feed 10 billion people Mm -hmm. without some kind of crop help it's not just corn and wheat it's crops across the board you should do your research there is decent genetic modification and there is terrible genetic modification and we don't want to get into the politics of that right now listen if you eat corn. If you eat tomatoes, you're eating genetically modified products, whether by natural crossbreeding, whether by natural slowly cross-pollination, whether through industrial problems. All of that has happened to the food supply itself. Some of it good, some of it bad, but We just want to say that, in fact, you have to have help to feed this many people. Well,
1: here's an example. Let's look at bananas. Now, you can get them anywhere, right? You can get them in San Francisco in London, even in Moscow, they eat bananas. And they grow in the tropics, and they're going to spend as much as 40 days on a boat to get where they're going, so they they pick green, of course. And then they get exposed to ethylene gas to make them ripen when they're needed, okay? Fruit gives off ethylene naturally, too. So what happens when you have a giant shipment of green bananas and one banana says, I'm going to ripen today (laughs) and I'm going to give off my own ethylene. I'm going to be a Mm. farting banana and Mm. give off my own Mm. ethylene. That's me. I've ripened today already. (laughs) So... It ripens the entire shipment, and by the time it gets where it's going, those bananas have to be tossed. Yeah, so what's happening
0: is that there are coming on the market bananas that actually produce less ethylene gas, which leads to less ripening, which means that there's better storage in passage. Listen, I I know that a banana that is picked green and shipped doesn't taste anything like a banana that is picked ripe off the, the banana tree. Of course, we all know that, but there's, again, 10 billion people by 2050 this is a huge problem
1: you know and then there's the ugly fruit and vegetable issue we talked about that you know farmers are unable to sell them because they don't look perfect and stores want their produce to look perfect so so much gets thrown out because it's just ugly fruit
0: and this cannot be solved through genetic modification right you can't solve this one because you think oh my gosh look at us you know we can i don't know what we can modify genes and do something about and make all the apples perfect it will never happen this has to do with our expectations of what it is that we buy now no you don't want to buy mushy mangoes no Mm. you don't want to buy bananas that are black no of course not you don't want to buy any of that but you do want to think about buying. As it were, less than perfect food.
1: We have to believe, we really, and we can say we can teach our kids, but we have to believe that two apples side by side are both delicious, even if one has a blemish on it. Yep. And you know what? Yep. There's just, there's no difference between them. So there are already companies doing stuff, aren't there? Yep. There are, like imperfectfoods.com and
0: others are already selling less than perfect vegetables, which you can get by the box for socially conscious uh, consumers with a bit of disposable income because actually they're less than perfect, but they're quite expensive from these places if you go to a farmers market and I hope you do go to farmers markets because they are fabulous places to shop for produce if you go you will notice that the produce at a farmers market does not look like the produce in a grocery store because a it is generally not waxed and B it is generally not all completely uniformly
1: perfect no so but you know here's three things we could do first you have to know how to interpret expiration labels right so there are two phrases you need to look at best if used by that's really important (laughs) because all that means is by that date it is when it tastes it's absolute perfect it doesn't mean it it's going to kill you or go bad after that best
0: if used by i have to tell you that um this summer uh you may know from previous episodes of this podcast i helped my dad die and it was a overwhelmingly horrible summer for me and uh, at one point, I was making my mom and me BLTs. And um, dad was in hospice. He was at home in hospice. Uh, we were trying to take care of him. I was making us BLTs for like, uh, you know, a 9 o'clock dinner at night because we basically had run, run our time till then. Anyway, I pulled mayonnaise out of my mom's fridge. And it said, best if used by, and the date I think on it was in 2020. It may have even been 2019. <laughs> And I opened it, and I smelled it, and it didn't smell bad, and I thought, ugh. You know what? I I can't deal with this. I'm just going to use the mayonnaise, and I did, and we didn't die. So I'm not saying that you should use two-year-old mayonnaise, but I am saying that if it's best if used by, then you should maybe use a little bit of common sense with the product. That's very different from a label that says used by or expires on.
1: Yeah, if you if, when the, once the word best is gone, as Mark said, used by or expires on, that's food that can really go bad. That's food that can make you sick if you eat them after that date. So If you stop throwing out food that just says, best if used by, you'll save a lot of food from going into the trash.
0: That's right. And freeze food that can be eaten immediately, um, you know, you can really save a lot back in the freezer. And just as a really absolutely self-conscious plug here, if you have an Instant Pot, Bruce and I have an entire book called Freezer to Instant Pot, in which we have 1,000 recipes. Not 1,000, 125 recipes. 125 recipes that you can make straight out of the freezer in an Instant Pot. No defrosting
1: required. And the third thing is plan out your meals and make deliberate grocery shopping lists. This is hard. It is hard, but when you plan out your meals, you know what you're gonna eat, you tend to buy just what you need. If you go in without a plan, oh, this looks good, this looks good, this looks good, you buy much more You than know you the old rule.
0: Don't go in supermarkets hungry. Well,
1: that's the other thing. Never, ever shop hungry because you will buy stuff that's even not on your list. Oh, my
0: gosh. Think about all the chocolate chip cookies and oatmeal cookies you'll buy if you walk in the grocery store hungry. Okay, so that's our long segment on feeding the world and food waste and the problems of food waste. So let's move on to segment number two.
1: we get to our next segment i want to ask everyone please go to facebook and join our group cooking with bruce and mark Uh, we all gather there we share photos recipes pictures we talk about food we have a great time so go to facebook and join our group cooking with bruce and mark this week's one minute cooking tip Replace your nonstick skillet.
0: Oh, I just did this. I moved my mom across the country to an assisted living facility near my brother. And I pulled her nonstick skillets out to get them ready for the movers to take. And they were all dinged up. And I said, Mom, I'm really sorry, but you know what? I'm going to buy you new nonstick skillets when you get there because these are dinged up and scratched up and you need to replace them.
1: A brand new nonstick skillet will cook an egg and let it slide out with any fat. That's the way it should always be. The time it stops doing that is the time to let it go.
0: That is. It is. So anyway, replace your nonstick cookware. Even if you don't think you should, you know what? Here's my rule of thumb. Every year, buy yourself a new nonstick skillet. Okay, segment three. Today, I'm interviewing
1: Abby Dodge.
0: Oh, I can't wait to hear this. I love Abby Dodge. I love her baking books. I think she is a consummate cookbook writer, and she has a book that is near and dear to our hearts because we wrote a sheet cake book, and guess what? She has one too, so here's Bruce's interview.
1: I'm talking to an old friend, Abby Dodge. She's the author of 11 cookbooks, including the award-winning The Everyday Baker. She was the founding Test Kitchen Director at Fine Cooking Magazine. She has classes on Craftsy.com and Abby hosts a monthly column on CookTheVineyard.com called Baking Together. We're gonna talk about her latest book today, Sheet Cake, Easy One-Pan Recipes for Every Day and Every Occasion. Abby, welcome.
2: Thank you, Bruce. It's nice to see you and hear you.
1: When you say recipes in your books are every day, you are not exaggerating. I have made so many of your recipes from your English muffins to your fluffernutter cake, and they are indeed easy enough to make every day.
2: I aim to please. Um, It's always been my goal to to make recipes that are approachable and easy to do. I, I also like to break recipes down so you can do them in stages. And another thing that I like to do, which I know You like to do as well is give readers a a lot of options. It's kind of my fun little twist on things.
1: Tell me why you chose to focus on the
2: sheet pan. My fascination with sheet pans started a number of years ago with the whole influx of sheet pan dinners and how they streamline dinner making, how they make it so much easier. And I kind of thought, well, let's not leave dessert out of that mix. Um, So I started tackling cakes, you know, traditional cakes made in sheet pans, and different you know, ways to elevate that sheet cake so that it's not just boring old sheet cake. You know, fun ways to make it fancy or make it festive and fun.
1: Abby, I think you take away the fear so many people have about baking. In the book, you actually say the goal is not to create something perfect.
2: From my experience, and I'm sure that you and Mark have heard it as well, People are terrified of baking because they think it has to be perfect, um, that it has to look just like the picture. And I think it causes so much anxiety and I think it's a real turnoff for most people. The pictures in Sheet Cake are beautiful. They're done by a professional photographer, a professional food stylist. The props are just so. And people think that it has to look like that. Otherwise, it's a failure. And my goal is to say that what I think of is imperfect is the new perfect. It's not meant to look just like mine or yours, Bruce. We've been doing this for hundreds of years between us. You know, we're, it's not gonna look like ours, but it's still gonna taste great. And I think the more people can just wrap their arms around the fact that it doesn't have to look like the picture, that it's never gonna look like mine and really have fun with it and learn to have fun, I think is is my goal.
1: Well, what you do in the book is really amazing that you take this one thing, this cake baked in a plain sheet pan and you turn it into so many things. You open the book, you see some gorgeous sheet cakes and then all of a sudden you see layer cakes. And I was like, wait a second, this is a sheet cake book. So explain how easy it is to turn sheet cakes into, as you call them, stacked cakes.
2: It's as simple as cutting the sheet cake, the half sheet pan into four rectangles or three cake circles, and then smear on the frosting, put on another layer. Sometimes there's soaks that we add um, to the layers to give them extra boost of flavor or something like that, and then just keep going. And then what I like to do with the extra, like the extra layer or the extra pieces of the cake from the cutout circles is cut them up into little squares. I I call them croutons, cake croutons. I don't know why. I guess I think they look like croutons. (laughs) It's just kind of, again, that fun, dare I say, kind of whimsical way to to have some festive fun and use up the whole cake. It's a lot of cake.
1: I think that's a great idea because when you cut out those circles, you do, you're left with all the negative space then you're left with all those pieces of cake. And I love that you make croutons. I love that you turn that cake into crumbs to decorate the sides. You have a couple of cakes where you pile those crumbs on top of the icing. It's innovative. It's a great way to use that up. And it's a beautiful look that someone may not have ever thought about before. So we're talking about half sheet pans, which are the, the 18 by 13 inch pans. So what's your advice to people who only either have nine by 13 pans or smaller ovens that don't fit the large pans?
2: The easiest answer is use the 9x13, the standard 9x13, and bake half of the batter at a time. And it'll come out just the same. You'll have to monkey around with your shapes if you're doing a stacked cake, because you can't get three nice rounds out of two 9x13 layers. But you can do another rectangle stack if you'd like to. So again, you know, kind of like with the croutons and with the crumb topping, go with it, explore it, experience it, and it's just as much fun.
1: The flexibility of using the sheet cake is unbeatable. You do rolled cakes, a whole chapter on turning this sheet cake into a roll cake. And what I like, at the beginning of that chapter, you go into detail about how to turn the sheet cake into a roll cake and have it work.
2: So I like to tell people when they're experiencing a roll cake for the first time, that they need to muster up their confidence and be brave and get get all that courage in you, just like the cowardly lion. you You just have to get ready to go for it. So when the sheet pan comes out of the oven, obviously very hot, and it's quite large, so it might be a little cumbersome, but the important thing to do is be prepared, have some oven racks, have some confectioner's sugar. I describe it the process all in the book. And then invert it, pan goes away, parchment paper comes off, and I sprinkle the whole top with confectioner's sugar, lay the paper towels on, and then I roll it up when it's warm. Easiest explanation is to think about the fact that a cake, this cake, is more pliable when it's warm or Even hot. The minute it starts cooling down, it starts to set. Those proteins in the in the cake start to set up, and that's where you can get cracking if you wait too long. Not all roll cakes need to be rolled when they're warm. My roll cakes need to be rolled when they're warm. That's when I get a little bossy, Bruce. You know, I (laughs) like to boss people around a little bit. But that's basically the process. And I tell people who haven't done it that the first time you do anything, it's scary. It's intimidating and you feel like it's not going to work. Once you do it once, twice, then you're an old hand at it. I also make sure that I tell people in their pictures in the book, sometimes the cakes, the roll cake, when you do roll it, will crack a little bit. There will be tiny little things. It's not a big deal. Once you put some frosting on that and roll it back up, you're not going to see it. You're not going to care about it. It doesn't matter. I will tell you one time, Bruce, that I had already rolled my cake. I was making it for some dinner fun thing that we were doing. And I rolled it all up with the frosting and I was transferring it onto the platter that I was going to bring it. And it broke in half badly and irreparably. So I had to make some lemonade out of that lemon and I cut it all up into small pieces and I layered it in cups. I had some glass cups and I layered it with fresh fruit um, like a trifle and nobody was the wiser. So again, it's just about going with it.
1: Yeah. And thinking on your feet. That's a, that's a great solution to that. You have a separate chapter just on creams and fillings and you encourage bakers to mix and match. And I think that makes the book even more versatile and makes it an everyday baking companion. You have an apple compote that you make for one cake where I think it would be good on so many of cakes in there, including like your cinnamon crumb cake. That's a sheet cake that to me, I looked at it and I thought, wow, this is like the Drake's coffee cake of sheet cakes. And now I want the apple topping on top of it.
2: So that crumb cake, I have to say is one of my favorites. Um, it was a favorite of mine growing up, um, you know, those coffee cakes where I'd just pick off the crumbs. And I've been making that cake a lot, especially during the past year plus. Um, and going to your point, Bruce, it's, it is the goal. Like those, all those accompaniments that are in the back of the chapter are delicious uh, on so many different things. And I wanted to make sure that people knew that, that switching out different frostings Than the ones that I suggest initially suggest is encouraged. Everybody loves different flavor combinations. You know, there's a banana cake in the stacked section that I use uh, a chocolate frosting on, but I will say it's just as delicious with the peanut butter frosting. You know, I want people to have fun with this book.
1: Well, how can you not have fun when you're making a pretzel crusted caramel vanilla cheesecake? And then what I thought, I loved the butterscotch topping there. And I want to make your nutty chocolate upside downer and drizzle the butterscotch on top of that.
2: Ooh, so good. It's like a double dose of caramel topping. I love it.
1: And that's how this book can really become every day, because you you start with this fabulous sheet cake, you can stack them, you can roll them, and you have an endless combination of fillings.
2: Yeah. And, you know, adding, adding in those upside down cakes and the coffee cake that you mentioned, I thought was an important add because cakes aren't just for dessert, right? Um, now, I'm a dessert person, so it's an all day affair for me. But, you know, I think everyone should be, you know, open to using the this half sheet pan that you use for your dinners and making a coffee cake, um, making the chocolate upside down cake or the apple or pear upside down cake. These are great all day treats that um, I enjoy all day. So I want everyone to enjoy them all day.
1: Well, I think we are going to be enjoying them all day for a long time. Abby Dodge, her new book is She Cakes, Easy One Pan Recipes for Every Day and Every Occasion. Her website is abbydodge.com. Abby, thanks for talking with me today on Cooking with Bruce and Mark.
2: It's been really fun, Bruce. Thanks.
0: Okay, segment number four. What is making us happy in food this week? I'm gonna go first. Bruce and I, as I said, just came off vacation. We went to New Brunswick, Canada, and spent five days there hiking. And then we went to the North Main Woods. And on our way home, we stopped in Portland at Jay's on the dock, a oyster, lobster y, shellfishy place. And what's making me happy in food this week? And don't gross out. Is raw scallops. <laughs> completely raw scallops. I sat on Jay's dock and we ordered multiple plates in which I ate the completely raw scallops. They tasted sweet and fresh and gorgeous. I was Undone by eating raw scallops I am a raw fish lover And I was undone By eating these raw scallops They tasted like
1: nothing else I could ever imagine They were even better than scallops That we've had in sushi restaurants They They were were just so. I will also say that it was A spectacular Rosh Hashanah lunch (laughs) Yeah
0: It was Ross a Collins. spectacular. It was the first day of Rosh Hashanah, but okay, let's skip that
1: part. So before we got to Jay's, when we left our hotel in Greenville, Maine, we stopped at the Herring Brothers Butchery.
0: That's herring, like a fish. H e r r i n
1: g. And what's making me happy is their wicked good jerky. They make this beef jerky there that is so thin. You know, jerky sometimes so chewy and thick and you can't even bite yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This was like shaved. Another tubes. kind of Another Russia <Shana> favorite. <sighs> um, so this jerky, and they had two kinds. They had plain and they had jalapeno. And I said to the guy, well, how hot is a jalapeno? And he said, oh, just a little. It's really perfect. So
0: Okay. I can tell you right now, it's not. It's, it's not hot at all. It is
1: perfect, though. It's not hot, but it is. <laughs> I don't know. So I can't even imagine what the plane is. Um, but the one that says jalapeno is so delicious. We had to buy a whole box.
0: This is one of the things that's so great is to be able to travel around and find small food finds. And you know what? It's even easier with the Internet. It's easy to drive down the road and find out what's ahead. And you should always take advantage of that because, honestly, stopping off for a food find is one of the best ways to have a vacation. So that's our podcast this week. That's the episode. Lots in it. We were packed. We hope that you subscribe to this podcast. We hope that you would rate it. Drop down to the bottom of that Apple page and you can see a place where you can drop a rating. That would be most appreciated. I will thank you personally. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And we appreciate
1: that rating very much. And subscribe so you don't miss an episode and of Cooking with Bruce and Mark.